1: How are you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. I am walking down my favourite farm track. It's not even four in the afternoon this Saturday in mid-November 2019, and already it is well gloomy. And I guess in an hour or so it'll be dark. Wow! Look, there's a big puffball mushroom there. Ooh, it's detached. A friend of mine the other day who was visiting went for a walk and came back with one of these big old puffball mushrooms. A few weeks back this was. This one that I'm looking at now is all manky. It looks like a kind of zombie skull. But the one that my friend brought back was more pristine and firm in its riper, younger state. And he was saying, "'Oh, look what I've got, a puffball mushroom.' Do you know these are delicious if you slice them up and fry them? Now, my friend, Mark, is a restaurateur and a talented amateur chef. So I believe him, but I definitely didn't encourage him. I just said, wow, that's interesting. I definitely didn't say, let's do that. I want to eat some slices of fried puffball mushroom. I'm not going to rule out the possibility that it might be amazing but I suppose the reason I didn't leap at the opportunity was that I don't really like mushrooms to begin with. I'm quite a fussy eater. I'm trying to get better as I get older. And I am trying lots of things that I would never have tried in my younger days. But fried slices of puffball mushrooms is very low down on the list still. Anyway, look. Rosie, my dog friend, is not, as I speak, by my side. Or even in visual contact because I think she is further down the track somewhere with my son. My eldest son, Frank, who is 17. I think he took her out for a walk before I left the house. So maybe we'll bump into them as I'm recording this intro. But look, let me tell you about this week's episode 109, which features a rambly conversation with British television presenter and journalist turned author Dorno Porter. Dawn facts. Dawn, currently aged 40, worked in TV for a while, presenting sort of poppy social issue-based programmes and documentaries for BBC3, Channel 4 and Sky in the UK, before the publication of her first novel, Paper Aeroplanes, in 2013. That book was a fictional tale of an intense friendship between teenagers Renee and Flo, loosely inspired... By Dawn's own childhood in Guernsey and the death of her mother from breast cancer when she was quite young. The book was a critical and commercial success, and a sequel entitled Goose was published the following year, 2014. Since then, Dawn has had two more standalone novels published The Cows in 2016 and So Lucky published earlier this year, a funny and poignant story about. The deeper truths and intertwining lives of three superficially happy and successful women. Another Dawn fact for you. Dawn was also one of the founders of the charity Help Refugees UK, also known as Choose Love. Though we didn't actually talk about that in our conversation. There's a link in the description of this podcast where you can find out and support the charity if you wish. Dawn lives in Los Angeles with her two young children and her actor husband, Chris O'Dowd, for whom she incorporated the O into her name when they married in 2012. But I met up with Dawn when she was in London in October of this year on various promotional duties around the publication of So Lucky, and we recorded the conversation in a room... A room? ..at the London offices of ACAST who uh, bring you this and many other great, great podcasts, of course. Thanks to them for hosting. We kicked off with a bit of shallow chit-chat about selfie techniques and uh, general digital vanity. And that shifted to me asking Dawn about her mother. Hey, look who's here. Hello, dog. How are you? Yeah. Look, you get a bonus walk now. You've already had one. You want to join me for more? Yes, please. Okay, good one. Where's Frankie? Oh, there he is. He's wearing his headphones. He's listening to music and he's grinning at me cheesily because he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to be put on the spot. He's backing off because he doesn't want to improvise some great, great chat for the podcast intro. Or do you? No. Okay. (laughs) See you when we get back what are you listening to wire wire yeah. which one pink flag pink flag's a good one my yeah. oh, boy i'm so proud come on then rose fly past fly past and puddle jump that was anyway look where was i oh yes i was asking dawn about her mother And uh, by the way, the the conversation when we get to that part contains spoilers. I'm trying to be better about my spoilers. I'm aware that sometimes I'm very casual because I personally don't care too much about spoilers, but I'm trying to accommodate people who really do. Um, There are spoilers in the conversation for the film Terms of Endearment, which came out in 1983 So that, I would say, is very, very respectful. 36 years is... I mean, that's got to be pushing the envelope for the spoiler embargo, don't you think? Our death chat was not by any means all serious. And Dawn told me about some of her thoughts for what to do with her other loved ones after they die, especially her cat and her husband. And, by the way, according to New York-based taxidermist Kate Inamorato... As far as I know, it is illegal to taxidermy or mount a human being in the US. While I'm sure it's possible, the end result does not seem worth the trouble. Human skin discolours greatly after the preservation process and stretches a lot more than animal skin. This would mean that the maker would have to be very skilled in creating an exact body replica and painting and touching up the skin tone. This episode, as well as containing adult themes, juvenile themes, and trivial themes, also contains very strong language. Multiple Jeremy Hunts, in fact, so watch out. Back at the end for a small serving of solo waffles, but right now, here we go. is everything about overhead lighting mm-hmm. these days pin spots yeah. in the ceilings yeah and it's not flattering it's
2: not flattering and
1: also i wear a baseball cap a lot because of the desertion of my hair desertion. <laughs> my the cowardly dis- hair the
2: disappearance yeah. of my hair my
1: stupid cowardly hair is deserting.
2: How far back has it gone?
1: Oh, it's fine. I mean, well, That's I, I, all right. The thing is, I don't want to... You know, you get criticised for everything these days. I don't know if you noticed, <laughs> yeah. Dawn. But the other day I was complaining about my hair. To Richard Herring, I think, on his podcast. And then I fielded a few tweets after that from angry men.
2: Right. Angry
1: baldies saying, yeah. you don't have to cover up. There's no reason for it. Of course there's no reason yes. for it. I've always been a baseball cap guy, though. Right. But the problem is with the peak... My face is always in shade with the, oh, with the pin spots lighting. in the ceiling. Right. So then I have to tip my head back if someone's doing a selfie or something. Yeah. And then I look as if I'm doing some kind of looking down my nose, Noel Gallagher style.
2: Right, like he thinks he's cool.
1: Yeah. Like, fuck off. Really, I'm a bit mad for it, whatever.
2: You just d- I'm just trying to find my light.
1: Exactly. If someone does a selfie with you mm-hmm. and you see it and you are looking absolutely monstrously grotesque. Awful. Do you take it again? Do you say, come on, let's do it again? Or well, do you just let them go with it?
2: So I had an event last night and there was quite a queue, which I'm uh, very happy about. But when there's a queue, you can't like start saying, oh, let's take that again, because you just think of the people at the back who just want to get their book signed. Yeah. So there's an awful lot of photographs out there of me from last night that are really displeasing. Right. But hey, don't really care that much. Yes, you do. Well, I don't know if I do. <laughs> long as I'm not Are you po- getting mature? I'm not going to post them on my Instagram. Right, okay. So.
1: I mean, that is the thing about the selfie generation though, isn't it? Is it, it, it's, well, you tell me, is it, this is like a conversation from a radio show about 15 years ago, but is it more than just an exercise in managing your own vanity and just giving you a little Philip? A little Philip? Yeah. Little, I was trying to avoid using the word <laughs> mental zhuzh. That's a phrase. Anyway. I'm
2: unfamiliar with Philip as a phrase.
1: Oh, like a Philip, you know, uh, a pick-me-up.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I think there's definitely no doubt that if you're feeling low and you manage to take a nice selfie of yourself, that you won't get a thousand compliments underneath your post. So I'm sure that there are times when people, possibly including myself, have just posted a nice photo for the sole purpose of receiving compliments.
1: You see, I've never done that, I don't think. Like, I've never posted it. For me, it's always been a private thing.
2: Yeah, just for you to look at.
1: Yeah, it's just like if if I wake <laughs> up and I look in the wrong mirror and I just think, oh, Jesus Christ, who's that fucking
2: who's that guy?
1: monster man? And <laughs> then I think, okay, I'll just check because it might just be the bad mirror. So I'll just check on my phone. And I think that the iPhone has a sort of slight fisheye effect on it. Oh, really? Maybe a very slight one, so that you don't really get a true representation of what you look like. It it. slightly thins you out. Okay. So if you go high and (laughs) scan around for the right light. Yeah. And then you just think, oh, there it is. There it is. Turn your head a little bit, get the right side there and... Bongo. And then you look at that and you think, oh no, I'm okay.
2: Okay. <laughs> and on I go with my day, looking <laughs> yeah. gorgeous. Oh no, I'm not
1: grotesque. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, it is pathetic behavior. It is isn't a bit it? pathetic. It's pathetic behavior that has now been entirely normalized and exists under the guise of some sort of, yeah, let's all share. It's fine. It's cool. But selfies are fundamentally pathetic they behavior. They are.
2: They are pathetic behavior. But, you know, good big part of human behaviour has always been vanity, hasn't it? It's always been there. We've always cared enormously. And now we've got this way of self-affirming every day. But most of the time it's a lie. Like you said, find the right angle. Yeah, I'm okay. When the reality isn't quite so much. (laughs) I
1: used to do a thing on my live show where people would see everything that was on my desktop.
2: Oh, wow. gosh, So they'd see the
1: folders and everything. And so it came out of a time when I was doing a show called Bug... And I plugged in my laptop and I forgot that I had things on my desktop that I right. didn't want people to see. I mean, it was fine. It wasn't too embarrassing. Once I did genuinely, though, call up a, a browser and there was some uh, soft core pornography softcore. left on it. Gosh. I mean, I, I, it was fairly tame.
2: That's quite revealing of you, though, which is actually quite sweet. <laughs> <laughs> did you just get a group? <laughs>
1: No, I think people thought it was deliberate. Right. People thought that I deliberately put it. And and then I thought, oh, yeah, of course, I can do jokes about that. Mm -hmm. So I'd have all these folders with different stupid names in them and, you know, like failed projects and uh, lists of (laughs) regrets and things I'm ashamed of, you know, for January this year and things like that. And one of them was selfies. And so I would take a new selfie for each show and there would be a flattering selfie And then another folder there would be what I actually look like pictures. And I'd take those from a very low angle, looking down.
2: That classic angle.
1: Yeah. Do you ever take those? Like, you look right, like the most unflattering one you can possibly take to counterbalance the flattering ones.
2: I try not to take them. However, the other day, I didn't realise that I'd kind of opened... FaceTime on my computer while I was writing oh, yeah. and I got to see my writing face and it was horrifying to realise that my, <laughs> my chin juts back into my neck like giving me multiple chins my eyes go squinty and cross-eyed I'm always slightly like my head is copped and I was like this I was like oh my god that just flashed up and I didn't know that that's what I look like when I'm concentrating so that was very upsetting.
1: There's a little bit in the book in your new book where one of the mums takes a FaceTime call accidentally. Yes and gets that shock. And I very much related to that. I don't do FaceTime. Well,
2: you know, when someone says, I'll call you later, and then they FaceTime, you like, what the hell are you doing? You have to, that's a plan that we should have made together. That should have been something that as a collective pair, who's going to have this call, should have been able to both agree from both sides that (laughs) a FaceTime call is acceptable because it rarely is, rarely is. Do you FaceTime with like older people ever?
1: No, I try not to FaceTime ever with anyone. Well,
2: see, if I FaceTime with my elderly auntie, I get the top right corner of her forehead for the entire <laughs> call. If I FaceTime with my dad, I get the, like, from below, up, his nose, chins, yeah. beard scenario. I'm just like It's just an all-round disaster. The only people I like FaceTiming with are my kids. That's yes. it.
1: You know the comedian Roisin Conaty? Yes. She loves it. Loves it? People will FaceTime her. She, yeah, sure, she'll take a no, FaceTime call.
2: No, 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 no. No way. No, no. Absolutely not. It's horrible. Yeah, I don't mind if I've had time to apply my strong eye and I've got big <laughs> hair. Then I'm like, bring it on. But no, just the kind of average cold caller on FaceTime can do one. I'm just not interested. Yeah. It's terrifying. And also sometimes you do um, work people want to do, like, FaceTime calls. That's the worst.
1: Yes. What's wrong with an email? It'll take half the time. You get the time to compose your thoughts succinctly, say everything you need to say in one email that would take an hour. Like, if you do a conference call, that's even worse.
2: awful. And no one knows who's talking. And the first bit where all seven people have to comment on the weather about where they are. I can't do it. It's so boring. If
1: I've got the option, I will always be the person that says, fuck all. I'll say it right at the beginning. It'll just say, Adam Buxton has joined the call. Yes. And then it'll be, hi.
2: Hi. Hi,
1: everyone. Yeah. And that'll be it I from Buckles for the rest just, of the conference call. When I'm
2: in that kind of situation, I overcompensate and become... You start like, leading. Basically jazz hands, feel like I need to do stand-up, just can't stop trying to be funny because yeah. I find it so awkward. And then there's always the situation because it's so awkward where someone will say, pardon, and then you kind of have to repeat the funny thing that you tried to say. Yes. And I get to the end of those calls and I'm like, why? Why can't I be more like Adam Buxton? Why can't I just stand back, listen... Let them talk, me occasionally saying yes. Can't do it. Can't shut up. I'm a, an <laughs> inherent show-off. <laughs> it's, like it's a challenge to shut up.
1: Have you always been like that?
2: Yeah, I've always been craving to be the centre of attention in whatever room that I'm in. I would say that the older I've got, that's become less so. In the fact that I still really enjoy being the centre of attention, but I don't need to be it in every room I walk into.
1: So Dawn, yes. I'm going to go into Anthony Clare in the psychiatrist yeah. chair mode. <laughs> Do you have therapy?
2: I don't, and I probably should.
1: I was just wondering if a therapist had ever offered an opinion on why you need to be the centre of attention.
2: Um, I think I'm probably pretty textbook. I lost my mum when I was quite young. and How old? A couple of days before I turned seven.
1: Oh, mate.
2: Yeah, pretty young. Yeah, yeah. And I think before that, I was definitely... You know, she'd been ill for a long time before that. I'd say... I, as a kid, was just kind of desperate to be loved and noticed. Don't think it's any coincidence that I went into trying to <clears throat> be in the public eye. Mm-hmm. So I think if a therapist was to listen to me, they would say, Yes, you were a little girl who was terrified of being abandoned and just went out there in the world to just, you know, be loved. It's a pretty textbook.
1: How long was your mother ill?
2: My memory kind of is different to what the reality is. So she would have had breast cancer probably when I was around three or four and had a mastectomy and was okay for a few years and then it came back and she was, it was just everywhere. So I'd say for that last year or two, she was in and out of hospital because we grew up in Guernsey, she'd have to go to Southampton for her treatment and so she would have been away quite a lot and upstairs in bed quite a lot. I'm a bit blurry on the exact timeline of all of that, but I'd say it was a good year or two.
1: And how much were you aware of what was going on?
2: It was very weird because I didn't know that she was really ill or dying, but, you know, she was lying upstairs in bed with a turban on, and that's one of my main memories of her. Cultural appropriation. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) She was bald. (laughs) And she... It was weird because I don't know if this is a consequence of the chemotherapy and I need to find this out. My sister and I used to lie in bed and peel off her skin because, like, it was sunburned. Yeah. And it was all peeling off. And we used to just love it. We used to peel off and flake off her skin.
1: Well, yeah. Those were the younger people won't remember those days. But in the old days, that's what summer holidays were all about. Right, yeah. You go on summer holiday for a week or two, you get really burned and then you have peeling fun when you get back.
2: Yes, but it's just so weird that she was kind of lying in bed and had obviously been going through chemotherapy, so I'm just wondering now, was that actually a consequence of the treatment? It must treatment? have been, yeah. I'm not sure, but also she was a sun goddess and loved sunbathing, so it could have been that as well. So it was a weird childhood because at that point, I've never lived with my dad. I love my dad dearly. He lives up in Scotland. They got divorced when I was around one, when my mum left and moved down to Guernsey with my sister and I to the, where the rest of her family was. So at the time that she died, we all lived with my grandparents. So it was odd because while my mother was very ill, we kind of had my grandparents who were very attentive. We kind of had all the attention that we needed. We were, it was kind of overcompensated in a weird kind of way. And then after she died, we carried on living with my grandparents until I was about 10 before we moved in with our aunt and uncle. I mean, it's just, it's all weird, isn't it? Back I've got two kids now. It's just like two little girls going through all that. It's so That's bizarre. Your,
1: I mean, that was my worst nightmare at that sort of age, if there had been a film about your life, it would have been on a rainy Sunday afternoon and I would not have watched it because so, the idea was too depressing of a child losing their parents in that way.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's so sad.
1: But were you sad all the time?
2: No. I was. think I was a really happy kid. Mm. I think it played out in... Um, I mean, I was full of... I was... Oh God, was I sad? My sister was two years older than me and it definitely hit her very differently because she just had that two years of maturity, everything, you would feel everything a lot more... But I remember my overriding feeling was, just got to make everyone laugh, got to make everyone happy. All the adults are so sad, can't mention it. Walk in the room, do something funny, just do that. I remember feeling like that, just thinking like, no, 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 can't go there, can't go there, can't go there. And I know six and seven-year-olds now, and they're incredibly emotionally intelligent. So I look at them and I think, I knew exactly what was going on. must have known exactly what was going on. But I just kind of banked it. I didn't let it go whilst watching my sister who would be you know quite openly show her devastation and cry a lot and I'd say that I was like hugely in denial as a Mm seven-year-old which is very weird but I think that was kind of maybe what my family kind of did a bit.
1: I mean not everyone can be touchy-feely in those moments you know what I mean sure it's great to talk about your feelings and you know for my parents generation it wasn't necessarily helpful The, the prevailing wisdom at that time was that Actually, it does more harm than good to constantly rake over your feelings. Maybe. I still have a bit of a hangover of that idea from my dad. You know, I mean, I'm very happy to talk about anything. Yeah. And I do think it's helpful. And on the whole, I'm with the modern way of looking at things. But there are times when I think, actually, you don't need to talk about absolutely everything. All the time. All the time. No. And that's a hard one, especially when you're in that situation. Did you ever see Terms of Endearment?
2: No, I haven't. Have you not? No.
1: I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't see it. You know what it's about. No. Oh, well, it's about lots of things, but one of the characters is played by Deborah Winger, and she has an affair. She's got a slightly boring husband, who I think is called Flap, which is a strange name for a man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, maybe better, better for a man than a woman. I don't know. But he's called Flap, and... She gets cancer. Spoiler alert. Do you mind a spoiler?
2: No, I'm, I'm all here for it. That's fine. All right, okay. She dies. <laughs> okay.
1: It's very heartbreaking. And she has these children that she loves. And they're just little. But the scene, I haven't seen it for a long time. So I may be getting bits of this wrong. Mm. But I was struck when I saw it. Must have been about 20 years ago I saw it. or Something longer. That the final scene, her children aren't with her. She kind of... Shoes them out of the room. And I always thought, God, that's a bit harsh. Um,
2: well, how old are the kids? I, the I mean, they're
1: little, like seven and 14, I maybe. Mean, I it's, can't remember. Something it's like
2: it's such a weird thing. I don't know what the answer is there. Like, we didn't go to the funeral. That was kind of the family kind of decided that that was going to be the thing. And I actually, it's always been a question in my head was that the right decision or not? And even though there's a part of me as a grown up, you know, with a mature attitude to death and, someone who isn't upset about my mum dying anymore mm-hmm. I kind of think I'm just intrigued but I think I'm kind of glad I wasn't there mm-hmm. and I think you can when something that traumatic is having to a kid you can spare them some of the heavy parts it's heavy enough and you can spare them some of the visuals mm-hmm. and those memories that would just be locked in forever so For, you know it's each family to their own and what exactly. you do in that situation exactly. but you can't ask a seven year old, do you want to go to your mum's funeral or not? Do you want to watch your mum die or not? I've heard described to be the moment that she passed when she was sitting there with, you know, her family. I think that's enough for me. I don't know if I needed to be there as a seven year old the funeral. Although it's weird. It's just, oh God. I mean, and also you're asking grown-ups who are devastated to make decisions in a time when their heads are completely up their asses. Like it's so deeply complex. What
1: would you do if you were in that
2: situation? I don't know. I mean, obviously I think, you know, people ask me all the time, how does the fact that your mum died affect your mothering? And the honest truth is I rarely think about it. My yeah. auntie stepped in as my mum when I was 10. I'm very close to my sister. Like I feel like I have endless female support. She died so young that I don't I'm sad she's gone. I'm sad I don't have that, but I don't miss her. Mm-hmm. But what it has done to me is it's given me a heightened feeling of the fact that I could die on my children. And sometimes, you know, when I've got the fear from Hangover, which is most of the time, I, um, I kind of look at my kids and I'm going, God, I hope I never do this to you. I hope that never happens. And I go through the whole scenario in my head and just play it out. And, oh, I think I'd make them a video. You know, as soon as I found out that I was ill, I would start filming so that they had this video as reference for their whole life. But then would that be weird? And then you think, what would the last thing that I want to say to them be? Would I write them letters? You don't know. You can't plan. It's something you can never say to you what I would do if I was dying. I mean, it's that none of us know anything. You know, at the moment, I'm going through this situation with my Siamese cat, Lilu, where she's 16. And I've had her my entire adult life. I think when she's died, I'm going to get her stuffed because I can't live without her. I don't know how I'm going to feel. There might be when she's died and, I, and I'm presented with her dead body. I might think, I can't do that. That's too twisted and dark. You just don't know. I think you can't plan for death and how you'll react and how what you will say and how you will be because you could think, right, I'm going to write these beautiful words and I'm going to say to my kid when I'm on my deathbed, if that moment arises, truth is, I'll probably be in floods of tears and not be able to get a word out. you just got to...
1: You'll just be wasted on morphine.
2: I'll just be wasted on morphine and margaritas, hopefully.
1: My dad was out of it on... Yeah. All sorts of things. That's the thing is I think you... It's mm. often, I think, not always, but much less sort of dramatic. And yes. It's just sort of they zone out. Either because of the pills or just that's your body is just in the process of shutting down if it's yeah. old age. So you're often not dealing with someone who's either completely lucid or particularly articulate. Yeah. They're not sort of saying, ah, now yes. I have a speech.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: I want to say some pretty profound shit <laughs> that you're going to remember for the rest of your life.
2: Mm. But losing someone as an adult and losing someone as a kid is so entirely different. And I had this odd situation when I was a teenager and in my 20s when if any of my friends' mums died, they would call me as if I knew what they were going through. And I'd be like, I have no idea Mm -hmm. what you're going through. Like, my frustration is that I barely knew her. That wasn't fair. But I didn't understand, like, the later in life that you lose a parent. Jesus, when this person has been a part of your whole life. Like, that to me is just... I mean, I've got that all to come with other members of my family. You know, it's like that is, I don't know how that feels. That is devastating. I kind of feel, oh, God, it's such a weird thing to say. But, like, maybe I was kind of lucky in a weird kind of way that I didn't have to experience that kind of devastation.
1: I know what you mean. You know? Do you genuinely think you might stuff the cat?
2: Here's the thing. She's Siamese, so she's quite beautiful. Yeah. And my relationship with her is very intense. I have a very intense relationship with this animal. Like I said, I've had her for 16 years. She has been my entire adult life. I've travelled the world with her. I take her home for Christmas. She's literally been in a bag by my side wherever I've gone. I had to find a man who was willing to accept the cat because she's quite overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I honestly cannot imagine my life without her despite the fact that she pisses on my pillows. So... I also have a dog called Potato, who is the most delicious person imaginable. Mm-hmm. I couldn't stuff Potato because his doughy little eyes would just devastate me. But there's something about Lilu and her self-righteousness and the way that she kind of judges us all where I think she should be in her most upright pose sitting by the fireplace for the rest of my life.
1: Yes, in a regal, haughty posture. Yes.
2: And I think because of her hard personality... Being hard would suit her. I refer to Potato as my memory foam dog because he just flops into whatever position you're in and his body just somehow just like, you know, fits your body. He couldn't be hard, but I think Lulu could work. And I think as long as I get some weight put in her <laughs> and ideally get her made to the same weight that she was when she was alive, I think we could all have a sense of humour about that and that we could... Potentially not be devastated by it every time he walks into the living room. Chris is on board, and I think it's what I want to do. Yeah. As long as she dies in a pleasant way. Obviously, if it's roadkill, then we're not going to be so interested.
1: Some people stuff people. Pardon? I mean, there are taxidermied <laughs> people, aren't there? Like, you can do it, right? There's can no you really? Re- sure, why not? Why could you taxidermy (laughs) an animal and not a person
2: I mean it's a funny subject Chris is determined that when he dies he wants to be shot into space (laughs) so but as he really feels like it's going to be his actual full form shot into space so for his 40th birthday I did quite a lot of research into this I thought my gift to him would be like you know I would pay part of the price and get some sort of promise from nasa that we were gonna do this thing so i found this company that i well i realized that actually it's not possible what you can do is you can have some of your ashes shot into space in an aluminium capsule okay and um so i was talking to this who's associated with nasa who do this i had like i work in this co-working space i had this hilarious conversation where i'm on the phone to this quite old woman and um I was saying, right, so is it possible to get the aluminium capsule that I could get engraved to give to my husband as a gift? And she was like, yes, and when's the funeral? I was like, no, 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 no. he's not dead. I want to give it to him his 40th birthday as a promise that I'll shoot <laughs> some of him. Yes, but, um, so, when, when is it, sorry, and she couldn't, and I was having to say quite out loud, by this point, like, six people who work in the office with me are all in hysterics, and I was like, no, he's not dead. I want to give it to him as a gift for his 40th birthday as the promise that I'll shoot him into space when he dies. This woman was just like I don't know and that was when I was like let's switch to email I need to explain this to you properly realizing that it was just so complex to do this aborted that idea and then afterwards when I actually gave Chris his real present at his party I kind of thought that joke could have just Died, couldn't it? If I just hand him this aluminium capsule, saying I'm going to shoot you into space when you die, but he's quite disappointed.
1: I don't think that joke could have died.
2: I mean, it's quite. When I told his mum, she was just like, "No, I just don't get it. I just don't. I just don't get it." And I was like, "Okay, okay, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna let this idea go." Anyway, um, he's very disappointed that he can't be fully shot out there, so that his weird dead body just floats around space forever. I mean, it's a good idea.
1: Yes, well, Elon Musk shot a car into space. There's a car floating around that Elon Musk put up there, and there's a dummy at the wheel. And there was a theory going around that it was actually David Bowie's body.
2: Stop this.
1: Yeah, and that the car stereo... I I think I'm right. The car stereo is playing Space Oddity all all the time, even though in space you can't hear it because there's no atmosphere. And so people were <laughs> imagining that somehow Bowie had got in touch with Elon Musk and said, Stick us in the car and shoot us out into space, would you? And Musk, being a fan, had said, Yeah, sure, I'll sort it out. That
2: is fantastic. I don't think
1: that's true. But let's
2: all just. But go the car away. is
1: true. The car is floating around. Here's and there what, is a here's dummy of what worries at the wheel. me
2: about that? So when I was um, researching shooting my husband into space, the thing about the capsules is that it gets sucked back in by the Earth's atmosphere. and something that small I think gets burnt up as it's coming back in but what if that car gets sucked back in or if we did start shooting bodies into space and dead bodies just started landing <laughs> in your garden
1: I think they burn up
2: do you think? yeah they're well, going to e- get through the atmosphere that's equally as horrific really isn't it? no <laughs> a little shooting star maybe little meteorite I think that was Chris oh Chris's balls oh Chris's balls there he goes Pop. <laughs> we're halfway through
0: the podcast I think it's going really great The conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate. All right, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm pleased to see you. Ooh, there's so much chemistry. It's like a science lab of talking. I'm interested in what you said. Thank you. There's fun chat and there's deep chat. It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking.
1: Now look, I read your Wikipedia page.
2: Excellent. It's all true.
1: Do you maintain it?
2: I don't. You've done a lot of stuff. I have, yes.
1: You're driven.
2: I do like to drive. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: I am driven, yes. You like to be driven. Um, (laughs) You went to Liverpool Institute for the Performing Arts. I did. That's the school that MACA set up, isn't it? It is, yes. He gave me my degree. Did he? um,
2: Yes, I remember um, having never really thought he was particularly attractive, meeting him in person, I was overwhelmed by his hotness yeah if i remember rightly he was wearing a white suit with kind of jesus sandals yeah. and he gave us all our degrees and wow. i thought that was pretty damn cool i was like you can pummel your money into something like that but to actually show up and do that every year is That's so amazing. yeah it's brilliant yeah that was an amazing school i mean i went there to do acting quickly realized i didn't want to be an actress so that yeah. was a bit disappointing but i made you know friends for life called ourselves the sofa gang pop loads of pills just gurned on a sofa what for What kind three of pills? Headache pills. Yes, lots of headache pills. And we just kind of... I just look at back... Oh, actually, I think most people look back on the university or college years as a party. Yeah. And very rarely is that degree that you're getting at all relevant to the rest of your life. I just had such a good time there. But yeah, in my third year, I was like, I really don't want to be an actress. Thank God, because I always think if being married to an actor. If I was an actress too, it, just be, it would be so hard. Yes. Um,
1: competitive tension.
2: Not only competitive, but just... Like the demands of the job and how much it takes you away. I used to do TV and be do those kind of twelve-hour filming days. And luckily, I've kind of settled where I just write full time, which it's so great for our family because Chris does acting, and if he needs to move around, as long as I've got my laptop, I can be anywhere. And I sometimes think, God, if I was pursuing that on-screen job still with two young kids, it would just be so difficult. Mm. No wonder people break up when that's what you're dealing with. It's really hard. So. Yeah, in my, in my third year, I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to do TV presenting. So instead of doing a final play, I said, can I make a TV show? And so a friend and I made a TV show and then... I knew that was what I wanted to do.
1: What was the TV show you made then?
2: So the TV show that we made at school was called A Matter of Taste. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a studio base. We had a huge red mouth that was a sofa, I think. And it was just...
1: That's a good idea. What, the tongue is the sofa?
2: I think so. I, well, the great thing about that drama school is that you had, the, there was a whole design. So you all the designers who could do a set, you had like sound engineers who could do it and lighting people. And so the lighting was actually pretty dark. But my friend Ed and I like wrote and This half an hour long TV show, and it was just really fun.
1: Was it sort of meta, or was it a genuine attempt at doing a sort of magazine show? It was
2: a genuine attempt at doing a magazine show, and we Uh did things like I can't remember what our, our celebrity interview was. God, that's terrible. It would have been some like local Merseyside celebrity that we had. And then I did like a feature where we interviewed a woman who was a plushie and like was in love with fluffy toys Mm -hmm. that was quite fun and we all just did it we did like it was at a time (laughs) what was the Zoe Ball and Jamie Thigston show that was it was no no
1: no, uh the Priory
2: the Priory so that was kind of it was that kind of vibe and it was just so fun and it felt really different and I (laughs) I think you know with acting I think my problem with acting and I remember doing this I remember saying when I was in one of the plays and I just remember thinking, I just want to rewrite this line because it's not very good. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't like being told what to say. And then suddenly we made this TV show where I was like writing it and doing it. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And suddenly felt very excited again. And felt I wish I'd realized that in the first year. Because yeah. I felt like I spent the first two years of drama school just being like, I just don't care. I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to act. Which is so weird because I'd spent my entire teenage years thinking that was what I wanted to do. The weird thing about it... I wanted to show off, wanted to do all these things, but I just felt really unconfident acting. felt really shy and, like, I was really, like, just didn't know. And as soon as I thought, right, I'm going to do me, then I really worked it out. So it was great. And then I moved down to London after that and was, like, a a runner for Princess Productions and booked audiences for the Ruby Wax daytime TV show and did all these kind of fun behind-the-scenes TV jobs.
1: Wow. Yeah. I like the idea of someone like... (laughs) Laurence <laughs> Olivier or Meryl Streep having an epiphany at drama school and going actually the thing I would most like to do is work in daytime television yeah, I, know, I,
2: know. <laughs> I mean that's when you know you're not cut out for it <laughs> I'm gonna go and book audiences for Ruby Wax instead um but yeah <laughs> you worked
1: on for Deal and Skinner on Plan that was
2: my first job so another thing when you're at drama school you're in your third year um, a matter of taste is like my first project and then in the second half of the year, you've got to do a big play and like present yourself. And I said, I just really don't want to do it. So instead, can I go down to London and do it work a work placement at a TV production company instead? And they kind of said yes, because I think by this point, they were just like, just get the fuck out of here. You're moaning and unhappy all the time. And they agreed to mark me on it, which was really great of them. And so I can't remember what my contact was. But I managed to get work experience on Padilla and Skinner Unplanned in the Avalon office. And I was so taken by. I love Frank Skinner. Absolutely adore him. Always have. And David Baddiel as well. But at the time, I was like, you know, very excited to work with Frank. Now, like, just think they're both awesome, obviously. But it was so exciting. I was brought up on Guernsey. Then I went to Liverpool. Like this kind of London TV production vibe was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is so brilliant. I couldn't get enough of it. And as I hoped, that kind of led on to other TV. Jobs and kind of moved down to London after I graduated. And and weirdly, I did my I had to do it as part of my course, the showcase at the end of your drama school. You had to do like three monologues on stage at the Criterion Theatre. Uh-huh. Is it the Criterion in the West End? And loads of agents come and I got some agent attention and kind of went and had those meetings, and it that was the moment where I realised no, I really don't want to do this. And it was really great leaving drama school with no doubts. Like, I never went for an audition, never did anything, didn't want to do it, done, end of conversation. So you
1: didn't say... I'm Dawn Porter, and I'm uh, going to perform piece to camera about local fun run. No. No.
2: No, I didn't do it. I, and I still find that so weird, because like I said, it was all I ever wanted to do. Mm. And then it just kind of, I kept getting good, like, it wasn't long before I wasn't doing West has got paid to be a runner, then started booking audiences for Ruby. And then one of the producers that I worked with said that he had a spot on this show called Balls of Steel, where... they needed someone who was willing to do terrible things on camera. Oh, um, were you
1: on camera? Yes.
2: And that was my first, like, foray into being on TV. And I did this terrible sketch, which was... I don't know if I'd be allowed to do it now. So um,
1: remind people what Balls of Steel was? Balls of
2: Steel was a prank show, and there was a kind of cast of us where we all had different characters. It was the show, the thing that made it famous was when... Do you remember when Tom Cruise was on red carpet and got squirted in the face? And it was just this microphone squirted water. And it just was just... Felt flat, and it was just like you're a jerk. You're a jerk, and it was a terrible thing to do to someone we're at their movie premiere. But that kind of got the show in the headlines. But this is the
1: thing: it's like the way to be. A top flight prankster is to be a fucking cunt.
2: Yes, an absolute cunt. (laughs) It's really horrible. There was one of the pranks in Balls of Steel where this guy would like jump out from behind a wall and just jump on a person's back and ride them like a buckaroo. (sighs) Like you could, the physical damage you could actually do to somebody, the whole thing was just absolutely horrendous. It's just being mean. Yeah. That whole Tom Cruise thing, when that happened, we were all like, oh, I feel so full of shame like doing this show.
1: Uh huh. Tom Cruise. Okay. I mean, in, in a way, it's got an edge to it now because people who are suspicious of his activities with the Scientologists might think, oh, well, fuck him. Whatever. But everyone I know who knows him, which is one person.
2: Th- think he's amazing.
1: think he's really nice.
2: Yeah, I just hear the loveliest things about him all the time. I really
1: hope, I, I would like to believe he's nice. I yeah. really hope, Tom, if you're listening, yes. I hope you haven't intimidated people for the Church of Scientology no. and disregarded naughty behaviour for the glorification of L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> anyway.
2: Um, I hope that message gets to him loud and clear, Adam.
1: You never know. Wow, that's funny that you did all that stuff, though.
2: I know, also terrible, but yes, funny.
1: No, look, we all did terrible stuff. Yeah. Um, well, maybe not all of us, but I certainly did a lot of stuff that I am not best pleased with. But how do you deal with all that? I mean, you get into the odd scrape, right, on social media?
2: Yes, I do, occasionally. It's not too bad. I kind of, I generally, unless it's a cause I really believe in, I'm not, I don't try to get into arguments, really. No. I got, you know, you get a bit of shit for totally believing that Michael Jackson is a massive paedophile, and then you get his supporters having a go, yeah, I just don't care. That's not an argument I'm going to get into. And there's stuff like... Oh, you know, when I talk about motherhood, and this is something that's really fair, and this is when you kind of, your instant reaction is to argue, and actually then you've got to take a step back and understand what this person is saying. So I wrote an article for the Sunday Times last week about raising toddlers and how it's really hard work. And, you know, when a toddler has a meltdown and you're just trying to get through a day, it's it's exhausting. And anyone who's a parent knows that. So I write this article, and then you get a few kind of comments underneath from people who would say things like, oh, yeah, poor you, living in Hollywood with a movie star husband, you can afford childcare whenever you want, and blah, 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 try throwing two, you know, hard jobs into the mix. Oh,
1: I I think I wrote that.
2: (laughs) And my kids being in an overcrowded school, Mm -hmm. my instant reaction was like, oh, for God's sake, and then I just stepped back and was like, no, you're right, that's bullshit, and I'm really sorry that you're experiencing that. And it must be really frustrating when someone like me moans about parenthood, totally totally get it and sometimes you have to just think about where that thing is coming from and very often when someone's having a go at you for something that you've said it is their feeling their opinion their situation it's if somebody just comes out as pure rage so I've tried to just you know I wrote a reply and deleted it immediately because I was like, if I write that to her she's going to get loads of shit from my followers because that's what always happens and she's obviously having a really hard time and so I'm sorry that you know it's annoying that this article that was supposed to be kind of entertaining in a way has upset somebody Mm -hmm. and i got a few of those comments but then you get other times god i had a situation a few months ago where someone just wrote to me on instagram and i'm like i'm kind of just up at night and can't sleep and um someone wrote to me something like you're a bore and your husband's oh this was at
1: the oscars i saw that
2: oh yeah and i just replied and you're a cunt (laughs) me and be like say my husband's ugly and I'm boring anyway I had no idea and I honestly genuinely because this has never happened before thought that anyone from the Daily Mail looked through the comments on my Instagram feed mm-hmm. and they printed it the next day I that think, I had this up. I think back. your
1: Instagram feed is linked to their front page.
2: Maybe, maybe. Anyway, I was—I've got to be honest—I wasn't that. Well, that wasn't something that made me feel good. That that person got that I'd called her a cunt in the Daily Mail, and that she got loads of shit for it. I thought it was quite funny to respond, and I was just like, that was, she was really blatantly rude. Yeah. Anyway, I was kind of the next day like, oh god, I mean that's just really not very nice. Her
1: comment underneath. So you were at the Oscars and you were there before the the ceremony started and you were running around taking funny selfies and stuff drunkenly as the, uh, this is from a website called Evoke.
2: That's Irish, I think.
1: Okay, so they describe you as running around tweeting drunkenly.
2: (coughs) Sounds classy. And the
1: the comment was, honestly, your husband is gross and you're a bore. That's right. To which you replied in all caps, you're a cunt. Then the person came back and said, "It's not okay to say that." What I said was just my opinion, and if you want to be in the public eye, learn to take it or get reported.
2: That's bullshit.
1: That is bullshit. That's, I think.
2: Like, I didn't want her to get loads of shit and to have her yeah. name in the um, Daily Mail or whatever. But fuck you for saying that because it doesn't matter about that. You don't write to someone say, "Write to someone say your husband's gross and you're a bore." You are being an outright cunt there's no conversation to have about that you're being mean yeah
1: it's that thing of people saying well no if you choose to be in the public eye then fuck you you've lost all your rights no, as a human being that's
2: a terrible way to think about and now especially because everyone's in the public eye like everyone's got thousands of followers on instagram or twitter and you never heard of them like everyone could do this. so if we all put ourselves in the position to be like kind of abused in that way it's i i just i've got no time for that mm. i but i try to be like i said before i try to be sympathetic towards like opinions on actual matters yeah. Or upset and where people are coming from sure you don't call everyone a no she can go fuck herself <laughs> <laughs> i mean i get that i put that on instagram so i am inviting opinion
1: yeah it's your fault
2: but um but <laughs> the way that people care so much about what other people do where people are just so fucking angry about what other people are doing. I don't know what that is. Do you feel like that about anything?
1: Well, it's, I mean, I would guess that it's a feeling of powerlessness. If you see people parading their lives and uh, flaunting their good fortune online or living in a way that you find troubling somehow or challenging somehow, then a natural instinct, not the only one, but a natural instinct Mm. is just to lash out. And just to go, no, don't do that. What are you doing? Yeah. And to express that in, in a variety of ways. But that's what social media encourages. It's, it does. Is, is just those instincts to come out in one form or another. Yeah. And then they're there forever.
2: I know. <laughs> so hateful. It, it God, is. It Why really... do you get off it? Um, well, actually, uh, uh, it's saying all of that. Mine is generally really nice and friendly. Yeah. I, I generally have a really fun time on Instagram anyway. yeah I'm oversensitive
0: why well, if I be moving so slow uh, it's taking ages for pages to load it was like this when the engineer came he said it was fixed but now it's the same I'm taking a photo with my tea to put on my Instagram some people like to see the tea of another man people be tripping our tea picket Yorkshire brewing a nice picket but I can upload. Mm, Cause my Wi-Fi's too slow. Oh, come on. Oh,
1: come on. Have you seen the documentary about Vivian Westwood?
2: No, I haven't. Punk no.
1: Icon activist.
2: No, been really looking forward to seeing that.
1: I'm gonna use the phrase hard recommend.
2: Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs>
1: I would hard recommend Great. Vivian Westwood, punk icon, activist, uh, directed by Lorna Tucker herself, an ex-model, and it came out last year, 2018. But it was on TV the other day. Holy shit! It's one. Did you see the the Bros documentary?
2: Oh yes, I did. It was. A dream. Yeah, it
1: was very... Oh,
2: God, was, I can't. I just... It was, all, it was so, so
1: fantastic. It was a very happy time. Oh. And also, with that Bros documentary, you didn't feel unclean afterwards because it had a happy ending. Yes. They were on board. You got the feeling yeah. that they didn't disown the whole thing. It, yeah. It, it gave their career a boost as far as I'm aware. So it was victimless joy.
2: Yeah, I think it's the fact that they kind of came together at the end and you saw some sense of hope for them was what pulled it all together. I <laughs> wonder if we didn't get that. It would have been quite complicated to be left with it.
1: No, I mean, but- as I was watching it, I was uncomfortable. I was thinking, do they are they in on this or what's going on here? I this mean,
2: is- no one was feeding him those lines. No. No. It was absolutely magical. It
1: was great. Well, this one, I would say... Maybe it caught me at the right moment. We'd had a couple of glasses of wine, me and my wife, when we were watching it. But, oh, some pretty good stuff in there. However, she has disowned it, and she's not happy with it at all. But she wasn't happy with it going in. Right. This is the dame of British fashion, twice crowned, like, fashion Oscar woman. Yeah,
2: yeah at the awards right
1: I don't know what I'm talking well, it about that sounds perfect and you might not like her stuff but you can't argue with the fact that she is a, a legendary and pivotal figure in British fashion
2: god yeah, absolutely
1: and she is good value Holy shit. So right at the beginning of this documentary, she sat there sort of going, Oh God, I don't want to talk about all that old stuff anymore. It's so boring. Oh, the sex pistol. No, I'm not going to talk about it. It's no, no, I'm not. Look, the only way this is going to work is if you just leave me and I'll just talk about things and maybe some of them will be useful, but I'm not going to just talk about all that stuff. It's too boring. So already you're off and running. Yeah. It's great. The whole thing is really well put together. Okay,
2: I can't wait. I needed something to watch.
1: And she's got a... she's Her third husband, I think, is is this guy called Andreas Krontala. Artistic director and collaborator. Oh, he's so passionate about things. You just He's so passionate, you just have to do what he says. She says <laughs> at one point. But the people around her... Like the Alexander McQueen documentary was similarly enjoyable for some of the characters that inhabited that world. Exactly. And this guy, Andreas Kronthal, and you know, like sometimes um, one of the kind of four or five voices that I do when I'm reading out YouTube comments, it'll be kind of like this. And it's a fashion voice, like this guy that I know, he does fashion photography and stuff. But... I now know that there's a a lot of people who does talk like that. (laughs) And this guy, Andreas, he's married to Vivian Westwood. He's like this, and there's a great scene where he's like... uh, uh, Vivian Westwood's got into campaigning about the environment, so she's spending a lot of time doing that and less time concentrating on her label. And so Andreas, her husband and collaborator, has to pick up the slack. He's very stressed out. And so he's... Talking to his assistant, who is called, excellently, Pepe Lorifice. Oh, come on. Yeah, L-O-R-E-F-I-C-E.
2: That's fantastic Pepe Lorifice.
1: And <laughs> poor old is getting shouted at, because evidently there's been some show, there's been some models, and they didn't have socks. <laughs> and Andrea Ciscaille, everything
0: I ask you is not done. They had no socks on. They've got no socks on. I don't know why people don't go downstairs and get some socks from the shop. <laughs> they're
1: downstairs. One flight of stairs down, there are the socks. Why don't you go down, get the socks? And at one point, Pepe, who, you know, they're being filmed. Yeah. They're happy being filmed having this little set too. Pepe scratches his face. He's a little sort of awkward. And Andreas gets right in his face and makes this, like, aggressive, gesture of like scratching his face going scratching your face and he goes
0: why don't you go downstairs and get the socks it's just thick useless
1: i've written down exactly what he said
0: (laughs) you just need to go downstairs in the shop and get the socks i'll do it myself next time
2: sounds fantastic
1: he's amazing like you could do a whole documentary on just andreas but I really strongly...
2: Okay, that's going to be the first of your recommends.
1: Yeah. It's good, man. It's really nicely done. I love
2: a good documentary.
1: Have you got a, a, a favourite doc that springs to mind?
2: Oh, that's a nice question. But what one were we just talking about? I mean, I loved the Nina Oh, Simone. the Bross one. Oh, the Bros documentary is my favourite one that's happened in the last six months. I thought that was so good because I just love it when... Oh, you just go on such a journey... You know, it was just so perfect. I loved the Nina Simone documentary. Yes, I, what
1: happened, Miss Simone? Is it yeah. called or what's, what's
2: the what problem, happened, Miss Simone? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I what love an that. insight into a life that was. I thought that was beautifully, beautifully done. Mm. Um, obviously when there's a documentary that also involves great music that's always wonderful but I tell you what I've been watching a lot lately that a series of documentaries that CNN did about the different decades oh yeah oh, they're fab, I love them are they on Sky Atlantic or something? I don't know what they're on here, obviously I live in um, America oh you're in, in America, America. Oh, yeah. so I've been watching all of those for the second time love, love, love the vintage decades everything yeah, yeah. up to the 80s, what 60s, 70s and 80s specifically, can't get enough everything about them. So I think that's a really lovely documentary series. All the
1: war and racism. And love
2: war and yeah. love racism. It's just such an interesting time. You just realise, you know, how much of it has shaped us culturally. How yeah. much we're still referring back to all of it. And I just find it all really interesting, particularly the 80s, which I'm really enjoying reading about. I'm writing a musical that's set in the 80s. Are you really? Yes, I'm writing a musical Whoa. using the Stock Aitken and Waterman back catalogue. <laughs> um Which is hands down the best thing in the world that I've ever done and so um, it's set in the 80s so I've been going back there a lot recently you know I enjoy reading about the people power and how people took to the streets and made change in the 80s and just looking at what's happening now and how we're still like realising that that's a really effective way to make change and looking at where women were at in the 80s in the workplace thinking that they were the ones who had cracked equality and if they knew like well they do because most of them are still alive but to see that we're still fighting that battle now is just extraordinary and so many of the same are Arguments happening still. It's just interesting to look back on a time where they thought that it was happening in in many ways. I think that's the thing about
1: the 80s is that we thought, I say we, I was just a teenager, but Mm. there was a sense that like all the big problems had been solved. Yes. And now it was like, what are we going to do with our freedom and our money? And it's going to be great.
2: I know. I mean, on the one hand, the
1: big problems have been solved. On the other hand, there was a good chance we were going to get... Annihilated by nuclear. Nuclear, bombs. I know. So it was a very odd time. It was
2: such an odd decade. It must have, I mean, I. I was the same. I was. You know, I was literally in my bedroom listening to Stock Aiken and Waterman, with a you know mother dying upstairs. Yeah, like, just having this kind of. For me, it was an incredibly confusing, bizarre decade. But then I wasn't aware of the rest of the world living on Guernsey. I kind of heard about Margaret Thatcher. I didn't know anything about politics, didn't know any of it. It It's quite blissful in a weird kind of way when thinking about the rest of the world. So looking back on it, it's just like, God, that was all going on.
1: How was the Wi-Fi on Guernsey?
2: Oh, back then,
1: not so much. Probably slow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So in the time we have left, Mm -hmm. I want you to tell me why writing is the best job in the world, not... What I believe is the truth, that it's the shittest job in the world and it's fucking torture. And instead, you are just churning out books, left, right and centre. I want to know your writing routines and your secrets and your tips.
2: Right, I'm just going to go about it. Yeah. So it is the worst job in the world. And sometimes I'm like, why have I committed myself to a lifetime of homework? It feels like homework used to feel at school. However, I'm complete control of my time which is what I love about it and since having children it's made me really focused and I do a solid nine to five Monday to Friday drop the kids off get to my desk about quarter past nine don't look up headphones in listen to sounds of the ocean really loudly to block out everybody else and just write like a motherfucker until about quarter to five when if it's my day to pick up the kids I go and pick them up and because I'm so focused in that time now I kind of get the job done it took me three months to write so lucky it used to be like a year of just Always at the computer, but generally on three Twitter. months. Yeah. And is that long or short?
1: I'd get three paragraphs done at okay. that time. So,
2: yeah, but it's my... Now I kind of don't do TV anymore and I've, like, cleared the way and it's all I do. I can be a lot more productive, which I think is key. Trying to write when you've got other shit going on is hard. Yeah. And it's taken me to my second kid to get my head in gear of, like, right, I'm a mum now and I've got to get this done and the first, you know, when I had my first kid and I wrote The Cows, it was a mess. I just didn't know what I was doing. It was just all over the place. And now since I had Valentine, I'm like, I do my nine to five. And um, How old are your
1: children now? Two and four. Oh, mate. I
2: know. It's so much work. It's so much work. We always say, you know, that thing... You, you, finish a day's work and then you go home and do the second shift it's just a round-the-clock job um but i love it and i'm married to a man who's incredibly hands-on and when we're home he's
1: i don't believe that
2: i promise you and it's it's a wonderful thing and i don't think i could do it without it and just you know some strong irish stock his mother and his sisters wouldn't allow him to be any other way Mm -hmm. so that makes it easier obviously having that shared load and yeah, I just get the job done. And it's taken me, I'm 40 now, and I've written books since I was 25. And it's taken me all that time to get this discipline. And also, I, you know, Mike, the cows did really well. And I want to maintain that. I really enjoy that feeling of that all that work I put in gets received well, and that is great motivation to kind of keep working to that standard. And I think when I sit down and I've got a blank page in front of me, I think, how can I make this page the most riveting, funny or whatever it is that I can do so that this person wants to turn onto the next page? And I think about my readers on every single page and that's exciting. And I don't necessarily plot the whole novel because for me that's not how I live my life and I find that if I've locked myself into a format or a plot, I'm bored from the second I sit down. So a lot of the time by the end of the day I didn't know that was going to happen and that's how I keep myself excited.
1: And what about just basic things like dealing with distractions and answering emails and having to just do something that isn't part of the routine? And- That's
2: really hard. And my addiction to social media is definitely a problem and something that I have to just constantly battle with. I'm like, write a sentence, check Twitter, write two sentences, check Instagram. That's my biggest battle. And it's real and I have no answer for it. And one day I was got interviewed by Chris Evans the other day and I heard that he got rid of his mobile phone completely and email. And I don't know if I'd ever go that far, but I think there's something in the value. And I've done this before when I wrote a book called Goose. I had an assistant at the time and I got her to lock me out of Twitter and Instagram for five weeks and got the book written in five weeks. No way. And so I think in future, if I'm up against it, then that's the thing. You've got to give your password to someone else and have them lock me out because I can't be trusted otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) But I I also love Instagram and Twitter because I know currently on a book tour, because Mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, immediate relationship that I have with my readers is how I think my book will hopefully be a success. It's invaluable when you're promoting your work. So I'm kind of addicted to it with that knowledge at the you know at the base of it i'm so grateful that it exists i've been in a cave for three months listening to sounds of the ocean
1: how did you figure out sounds of the ocean was the thing because my
2: kids sleep to it every night i gave birth to valentine while art was asleep in the next room with sounds of the ocean turned up and he didn't even wake up i was like this shit cuts out noise so you were so, at home birth yes for val yeah oh. and um i tried it one day at work and then it just cuts out the room And I work with people who really respect that and don't try and talk to me all day. And so that's it. I'm in my cave, my by the ocean, just writing. The sounds of the ocean. Yeah, it's great. I'm going to try that. Do. It definitely works.
1: Do you sleep with noise on in your room?
2: No, but I wear earplugs, a silk sleep hat and an eye mask and I go into a cave when I sleep as well. And poor Chris. He's like, ah, yes. Yeah, so you put your hat on again. am <laughs> like, sorry. I need all this equipment. <laughs> to block you out of I know. was life. a while ago I went to the dentist and they told me and I didn't know that I grind my teeth in my sleep. I was oh. absolutely devastated because I was just having such bad pain. And so I was like, well, what's the solution? And she said, you need a mouth guard. And I was like, I cannot add more apparatus to my sleep. My husband will leave me. (laughs) So now I just grind my teeth in my sleep and it's just something else going
1: with. Wait, this is an advert
0: for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see Success. success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members' area and spend in your shop.
1: continue did no socks hey so that was Dorno Porter I was talking to there very nice to chat with her links to her books and her charity help refugees slash choose love in the description of this podcast now, after I have recorded this outro, I'll go back, edit it, put up the podcast, and then this evening I think we're going to carry on watching Succession. Yeah, I know. Late to the party. But it was one of those things, in my mind, it's the flea bag factor. Just a weight, an overwhelming weight of hype and expectation that comes with reams of rave reviews and awards and your friends telling you oh it's so good you've got to watch it i just think hmm maybe i won't watch it then sounds as if you've got it covered and uh i you know but it just got ridiculous after a while there were so many people saying how good it was so we sat down gave it a go this is a few months back actually started watching the first series If you're even later to the party than I am and you haven't seen Succession, it is about a Rupert Murdoch, Robert Maxwell type media oligarch and the struggles within his family, mainly between his children, for control of the company. And my initial reaction was, I, I get it, they're horrible. But I'm not sure how much fun it's going to be to spend time with these people, so I kind of gave up, or rather, we gave up. It wasn't unilateral. Myself and my wife agreed to give up. But then we had more conversations with more friends, saying, "Oh no, 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 no! You got to stick with it. Oh, because it's so good. There's so much more to it. It's so multi-layered and multi-textural. And anyway, so we did go back. This is a good story, isn't it?" But we went back, and I'll tell you what we did, actually. And some of you may find this shocking, and I'm sorry if so. But we, rather than go back to series one and pick up where we left off, we were about three episodes in, I think. We just started watching series two. And sure enough, after a few episodes, it got really good. And then it got better and better. And by the series two finale, we were electrified with excitement and so now, for the last few nights, we've been picking up where we left off in series one and I would imagine that it's not the way that uh, Jesse Armstrong, the show's creator would have recommended that we watch the show, but it's actually working quite well as a sort of prequel Oh, it's so good So yeah, there you go, you're welcome Recommendation for a show that Everybody knows about and is probably slightly sick of hearing about if you're anything like me. Well, I'll give you another recommendation. Have you heard of a film called Star Wars? It's about a farm boy in space who makes friends with a couple of robots, one of whom is like a little bin. They have adventures. And the good thing about it is that if you like it, there's a lot of them. Well, actually, before I go today, here's a recommendation for something less well-known. A podcast. It's called The Secret Artists Podcast. Hosted by comedian and artist Annie McGrath. Basically, Annie has identified the fact that many comedians have uh, artistic aspirations or pretensions or backgrounds... And, uh, they, you know, they're just like art in some form or another. And so she sits down with them and paints for an hour. So it's a nice therapeutic mode to be in when you're having a conversation with someone. And uh, it's good. I, I listened to a couple, Katie Wicks and Phil Wang. Who else has she got on there? Pierre Novelli, Harriet Kemsley, Lou Sanders, Reese James, Ellie White... All sorts of good people from the current UK comedy scene. And um, give it a listen. A link is in the description of this podcast. Rosie, come on. Can't tell if she's down there or not. I see a moving blob in the dark. Here she comes. Yes, that's a good sight. Well done, dog. I love you. All right. Hey, look, thanks so much to Dorno Porter for making the time once again. Thank you very much indeed to ACAST. Thanks, as ever, to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his help with this podcast. And thank you to Matt Lamont for editing the conversation this week. Thank you very much, Seamus and Matt. Thanks to you for listening right to the end. It's heroic. Or maybe you just fell asleep. If that's the case, sorry, but I love you.